Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. I want to talk about anyway. Hello, folks. It's uh, Tuesday. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. Good afternoon, morning, evening, wherever you are. If you want to listen to this live, uh, go to the Acquirers Podcast YouTube channel, click the notification and it'll send you an email when we go live, or you can just find this uh, this site. How are you, gentlemen? I'm doing okay. Smoke has cleared a little bit, so my, my spirits are up. <laughs> From the portfolio? My, uh, no comment there. My, mine's still the on fire. Literal air breathing. Hey, we got some good... Omaha, Chapel Hill, London, Toronto, Cincinnati, Rio, Tulsa. We're worldwide, baby. I'm just looking at my portfolio, which is exactly what I shouldn't do. Yeah, don't do that. Stay away from the light, Bill. Come. Georgia, Stockholm. It's all right. I think it's my turn to do the intro this week. I haven't done it in like like four months or something. Welcome to Value After Hours with my esteemed co-hosts, Toby Carlisle and Bill Brewster. Toby, what do you got for us today? Yeah, I've been updating some charts. Uh, the The French data is always a little bit lagged, but I got the July data. Uh, so I ran the f- uh, free cash flow deciles uh, against each other. And so I just got some interesting little findings there that I'll be talking about. Parlez-vous Francais? Oh, Fama French. Okay. Bill, what do you got? I'm going to talk about how valuation cobbles the mind. What is cobbles? Can't wait for that. It means it makes you stupid. Cabbages. Hobbles. Whatever. Cabbages. Yeah, it, it's clearly that the valuation is cobbling our minds. I don't know what it's doing. It's clobbering my mind. What, what are you talking about, JT? I'm going to be talking about investment cicadas. Cicadas. Yeah, you're right. It definitely doesn't cobble the mind. That would be to put it together. <laughs> the, destroys the clog, people's minds. The clogged toilet of Bill Brewster's mind. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, I need to plunge it bad. Bill, do you want right, to back after this? Right back, yeah. Bill, do you want do, to do, uh, do, do, do. do you want to do yours? Because uh, then I can shit all over it straight after you do it. Okay, that sounds good. First of all, shout out to Curate for uh, abiding by the valuation rules that I'm about to disparage. Um, So here's the thing. People, I think, and I'm just going to talk about me. First, I'm going to turn my my mic down just a little. Hey, how's it going, folks? Um, I think that there – so for me, when I look at some of these highly valued companies – I sometimes impute some of my hatred of the valuation into the analysis of what the company does. And I think that it would be more beneficial if you suffer from my disease to not uh, 
focus so much on where something is trading and try to figure out why it's trading where it is, whether or not you think that it makes any sense is sort of a different issue. But there's a reasonable shot that if it's valued highly today, there's probably going to be a time in the future that you may want to buy it if other people find it a little less appealing than they do today. And doing the work today when you may think that nothing's going to bear fruit could present you with a really good opportunity for return on time down the road. And I guess that the the example that I've seen today, and some of this is just me imputing silliness into people's tweets, and some of it's people not really thinking, and some of it's whatever. But, um, you know, like Peloton, I think, is a pretty good example of a company that, like, I, I mean, I personally... I would not pay $27 billion to own this company. I think that's kind of insane. Um, but it's a product that I use and I understand what the bulls see. Um, and I think that, you know, like this Amazon entering the fray is easy if you hate Peloton to say, oh, Amazon's coming, Peloton's going to die or something like that. And I think that uh, the way that I see it, which obviously is the correct way and everybody else is wrong, uh, but I, I think that Amazon entering definitively would reduce sort of your TAM, but I don't know that you can argue that a, a bike that's priced like Tel Peloton is, and that subscription is this large market share anyway, right? Like, I mean, that's sort of by definition niche. So, um, you know, just because a Fiesta, a Ford Fiesta enters the market does not mean that people are going to stop buying Cadillacs, um, and I, I think that, I mean, I don't, you know, it's, Sorry, well, Jeff. it's, <laughs> what, Bezos? Come on. Like, Amazon is some lifestyle brand. It's just like Walmart. It's just bigger and on the internet. Um, and their prices aren't even that good, Jeff. You want to get back to something, fix your pricing. Uh, anyway, I understand that they got center aisle stuff and whatnot. But um, I just sort of, I, I think it would be more beneficial for myself to not, look at some of these valuation. I mean, maybe it's a good like hunting round, right? You screen on returns on capital and then just start researching. I'm sure almost all of it is going to be outside what I'm willing to pay, but uh, it so would a, probably a, reduce some of what I'm at at. A good hypothetical question to ask is like, when would be the optimum time in a research process to introduce price? Probably at the very end. I think that's probably right too. And yet, what percentage of people do you think look at the price at the very end? Like they come up with an independent valuation and then go look, see, does the market agree with me or not? Well, part of the reason for that is that it's a lot of effort to go through and do a full valuation. And that by the time you get to the end of a full valuation and then you find, I'm prepared to pay $20 for this thing. Where's it trading? Holy shit, $350. <laughs> Like that's yeah, whoops. now it's useless. Well, it's not necessarily useless, but it's just um, I understand why people just do it the, the other way around. Made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think look, I think that there's two answers to that. One, you may not be looking at the world right, right. So there is there is some reasonable argument to be made that maybe you're undervaluing something. And two, like yeah, a lot of stuff. I mean, it's like the old Buffettism. You uh, you find things wildly overvalue in the market often, right? So. Um, but the reverse sort of is also true. That's the game. The reverse right. is also true. You find stuff that's just it doesn't it doesn't make sense why it's trading where it where it is, and sometimes if you follow the reasons why, like then you go out and explore the reasons why, like that that's not helpful at all. That's just cabbages your mind up. 
doesn't cobble it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Isn't that fixing so, shoes? No, yeah. like it's putting together. But so yeah, so I guess sounds, I guess you would cobble a shoe. Sounds like we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in general about when we introduce price in our processes. Yeah, and I think this the same is also true. Like a lot of people, you know, like I don't know, like Markel was a compounder until its stock price went down into the right. Now you don't see it mentioned at all, right? Like, shut up. Like, stop looking at a stock price and telling me what the company does and how great the narrative is. It's ridiculous. Dude, you just went against 2020 so hard. No, I know, but that's the truth, right? <laughs> it's like, I mean, A.O. So Smith, true. that was just this fantastic company that just compounded and compounded and compounded all over Twitter while it was, you know, going up into the left. Uh, Right, rather, and then, you know, down into the right. Eh, who needs water heaters? Yeah, I think that... that what are we doing? I think that we're at, the, we're, we're at a funny point in the market. I, I think that the value bucket has never looked higher quality. I'm just astonished at the stuff that's in there that looks to me like if, the, if it was trading 10 times higher than where it is, then people would say, well, that's a, now it's a compounder. And the fact that it's not trading 10 times higher, it's trading cheaply because the stock's fallen off a cliff. People are like, well, this, shit. yeah, not going to buy it. It's just sold because it's been sold. Well, I think it's the old, um, I think, I think how Munger said to Buffett is he said, uh, you've often said to me that it's not what floor you're on. It's the direction that, it, that the elevator is going that people care about. So like, you know, I mean, it's like this. So he's talking thing. about like, the fundamentals, right? No, well, people, people are like, well, what's the terminal value? I don't know what the fucking terminal value is. Like you tell me, but I'll tell you what, the equity is too cheap today. Like if you're worried about 15 years away, we get to 15 years from now, my money's out. But you know, that's I I think that people are more concerned with certainty of where the trajectory or the perceived trajectory of a business is going, and that is obviously why you get a high multiple. I mean, that makes sense, right? People pay for their perception of certainty. But there's also another way to look at things. It says like, you know, people were asking Buffett, like, I don't know what, five years ago, should you sell Geico? Like imagine Berkshire this year without Geico. No, you should not sell Geico. Like change takes a long time to happen a lot of the times. Should should Buffett sell Apple because it's run up so much? I don't know. You should probably consider a collar or something. Oof. <laughs> what do That's I know? I sold it at like uh, $1.2 trillion. I'm an idiot. <laughs> you left a whole trillion on the I know. table. <laughs> so why, why do I deserve to have an opinion? I, don't, I mean, I, my, my view is that he shouldn't ever sell. He said that it's, it's one of his three big companies, three big businesses. He's never going to sell it. You could maybe trim a little. <laughs> it's a pretty big part of the portfolio. Well, sell some options against it. I mean, I know he doesn't really play that game, but do That's that. That's right, yeah. Or uh, you know, a convertible exchangeable debenture or something. The, the problem is that you, you sell the options at one and a half trillion and then it runs to two and a half trillion and you're out of the money. Well you just deliver the stock. Well, but he doesn't want to do that, right? Doesn't want to incur the the tax. He's not a trader. Yeah. That He's is an interesting a trader. question. What would uh what would Berkshire's portfolio look like today if there were zero capital gains taxes? Would it be much more? Would he turn things over more? Would he? Would there be, like, you know, the names would not sit there like they have? Would he have sold Coke in like '98? I'd be very curious what it would look like if there wasn't that that other component that sort of keeps him welded to the cockpit. <laughs> I bet. Uh, I bet that if I don't know the taxes matter 
as much as other people may think. That to Buffett, said, he writes about it a lot. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's, that, that's no. Okay. First of all, thank you for cutting me off, asses. <laughs> Secondly, uh, my comment more had to do with I think that Buffett would probably turn over stuff more in like a limited partnership. I, I don't know. He might perceive that there are benefits to Berkshire that outweigh the tax consequences of, of holding a stock too long because it creates a perception of forever ownership that he thinks outweighs the cost of the taxes. That's the most accurate way to say what I mean. But yes, he hates paying tax as much as John Malone does. Malone's just got, do you think Malone's got a more clever way of dealing with it? No, I just think Malone is like way more, uh, he just boasts about it more. Like, I, I think Buffett's as shrewd as anyone at avoiding taxes. Yeah, I just don't fair. think he like goes out there and tells everybody about it. But he doesn't have a whole lot of tracking stocks and uh, like that's just a, a way of avoiding tax, right? It's a way of getting it out yeah, of your that's... portfolio. But he's doing all kinds of like share swaps. He they approve like that preferred share in case people wanted to sell on a tax advantage base. I mean, Buffett hates taxes. Yeah, I mean the energy company is just a huge tax shield, right? Dude, Buffett, help your secretary. All those regulatory up. credits. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. I mean all yeah. He he loves not paying tax. There's, there's everything he does defers taxes. Hey, you know who else is really good about not paying taxes? Elon. No profits. <laughs> no. He's getting money back from the government. Jeez. I'll tell you what, Smart. man. That's an argument for SAS. If you think that that uh, tax rates are going up, uh, they're not going to pay taxes for a while. Because there's no cash flow. Well, I mean, look, they're investing through sales. Whether or not how much of that's growth and sustainable, I don't know. But I mean, it is definitively true that growth companies pay less taxes. Speaking of uh, of Tesla, uh, the Tesla's little brother Nikola has uh, vaporized itself, or Trevor Milton what has. Happened? Trevor Milton is out, um, and there's some sort of nasty allegations swirling around. I don't know how. I don't know how real AR, so I won't, I won't kind of comment here, but there's some nasty allegations out there about him too. Do you know a nasty allegation that I heard on the audio interweb recently? I heard that you had to, uh, that you went at Masa and that his <laughs> Twitter alter ego came at you to to demand a retraction. He's, he's on me today as well because the, the option trade, I haven't fully read the option trade stuff that came through. I'm busy this morning doing other stuff, but I'll, I'll take I a look at you it. I didn't want to mess with that dude. <laughs> that dude will come at people on Twitter with a vengeance. I don't know if it's Masa. It's good. I'm here, to learn. It's Masa's I'm here to learn. Cousin. I don't know if it's some dude sitting in New York. All I know is he tweeted out that we made an enemy and I was terrified. <laughs> then I was cracking up. That was a very funny day on the Twitter machine. Thank you, Masa Sun Capital. Yeah, it looks like this. It was an interesting. It's an interesting uh, trade. So they've sold. They've they've bought some. They bought the options. Bought four billion dollars in premium in, across seven high quality tech companies, and then they've sold some further up uh, out of the money. We don't know much more than that. I haven't had enough time to read through them. It could be a very shrewd trade to protect those positions. So I don't know. I'm going to take a close look. Tangentially, if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter. I'm about to make another Twitter comment. That that account, the funny thing about that account is how much he loves Masa and how much he hates Netflix. And I see a lot of things that rhyme in those two things, but that is neither here nor there. And I am about to get blown up. 
Yeah, Corey Hofstein's got a nice comment up on the screen. Uh, the uh, Do you think that Trevor's undoing was the HTML5 supercomputer? I, I'm not sure that I fully understand any of this. He, so, I don't even know what's going on. Here's my problem with Nicola. I, I don't think it was a fraud. Like, I know that they had a truck that rolled. It was never anything. It was just vaporware being packaged and sold to everybody. And if you didn't see it, like, they had zero revenue. What's the sort of so shenanigans like, that are fine really from micro My beef is Ubin. Come on, Jeff. That's who I'm mad at. I don't care about all the fraud stuff. I, I thought it was all bullshit anyway. Yeah. It, that's, I didn't know it was what... like blatant fraud, but I mean, I don't know what the line is thin. You just expect a little bit more from a $30 billion company though, don't you? Like if it's a, no. if it's a $300 million micro cap, then... You know, all of that all of that stuff is just hustle, and it's great. If it's a thirty billion dollar company, it needs to be a little bit more, um, a little bit less securities fraudsy. Dude, people need to reread. Uh, what is it? Uh, Extraordinary delusion, or uh, what is it? The madness of crowds. What the heck's the title? Uh, Extraordinary you know delusions and the madness of crowds. Yeah, yeah, Charles Mackey. Yeah, I mean, I don't, ex- I don't expect anything when I look at evaluation, other than people are going nuts. Uh, JT, do you want to give us some veggies or do you want me to do mine? Why don't you do yours? Because we're, it'll be, I want to hear what's going on with the... Along the same lines. Price to cash flow, yeah. So I, I, I have some presentations coming up and I had to uh, just go back and look at the data again for price to cash flow. This is the French data. It's available free online. They divide it up into uh, tersiles, quintiles, deciles. Uh, so you can have a look at the low... Uh, cash flow yielders versus the high cash flow yielders, which are the value stocks. The low cash flow yielders are the the growth, glamour, expensive, whatever you want to call them. Data runs from July 1951, uh, and it now goes through to July 2020. So we get to see what happened in March at the bottom, and then sort of the recovery through to July. The data is always a little bit lagged; it takes a while for them to collate it. So. It, speaking of the deciles, the value decile, which is the 10% that are the cheapest versus the 10% that are the most expensive, it got 62% behind from the drawdown, which started 2014, 2016. It really started in 2014, but there was a catch up to 2016 where it just kissed the growth line and fell back away. So if you're a value guy relative, and you're investing in that, that value, uh, the high yield cash flow portfolio, you're 62% behind the guys who are in the uh, the low cash flow yielding decile, which is which is a, a a big margin. Hard to keep assets doing. Very hard. It's it's the it's the biggest drawdown in the data by a long shot. The other ones are in the order of like 24%. Like 2,000 gets down to about 24% behind, and then from sort of the bottom in 2,000 through to about 2,014, say. Value goes up five times relative to uh, relative to growth. So you did much better being in value through that period of time. the 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 value portfolio has now run from 50, from sixty two percent behind to fifty six percent behind. So it's made up a little bit of ground over those four months. And we're all we're, back in the game. Yeah, well, it's not much. So you're telling me there's a chance. It's not much, but it's not going in the other direction, which is a good thing. I'll tell you what's interesting and that I've been thinking about 
usually in the shower. So my good thoughts, um, you know, a lot of like this SAS revenue growth, um, and this is a like huge generalization, but it, a lot of the value proposition seems to me to be, um, some sort of shared infrastructure of software or some sort of efficiency that is being created in the system or whatever. Right. Well, there's a lot of these like slow growth, like companies that people think are just like dog shit. You can get a lot of below the line growth if these SaaS companies are half of what people promise that they are. And the efficiency that could be taken out of the SGNA line item and yes, even redirected to some of these SaaS companies. Like it does not have to be uh, between the two companies who probably would lose in the scenario that I'm thinking about is labor. Uh, which that's a whole nother issue. But um, I mean, I don't know why a lot of this technology doesn't continue to help margins increase over the long term. And there's a couple ways to grow. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that bottom line growth should be valued the same way that top line growth should. Um, Nigren, I, if you're listening, holler at me. I'd like to debate you on that topic. Um, but that's like the, uh, I, I don't know. I think you could. I think people could be really surprised five years out where some of these companies that they sort of are like, eh, you know, we'll see what the cash flows do. I mean, I think margins have increased and stayed higher than people thought, and I think that this is part of the reason. I don't know that it's got to stop. It's not the whole reason, but it's part of it. Margins are higher because SaaS pulls out some of your cost in the SGNA one. Because- well, yeah, and I think I mean just think about how much more efficient like the cloud is to as like shared services and something that you can flick on and off. And yes, there can be margin there, but you're also removing a lot of um, inefficiency from you know the on-prem equipment that you may need, or the or the guy in the software room, or I don't know what the IT rooms look like in these big companies or whatever. But like those guys can be somewhat offloaded to a company that specializes and can monitor. CrowdStrike, for instance, the the my understanding of one of the benefits of their product is they can look across the cloud and implement a solution. You don't have to hire a bunch of guys that are looking for some random thing that they don't know what they're looking for, right? Like there's efficiencies that can be put into the entire system that can benefit both companies. Again, I don't know that the labor wins in this scenario, but does it'll it be, be interesting to see. Does it benefit was, as a consumer of it? Does it benefit your competitors as much as it benefits you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is like the that's the million dollar question. And right? if it does, then aren't you all just standing on tippy toes at the parade? You may. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. This is part of what uh, Munger says Buffett's a genius for, right? Figuring out when the technological advance benefits the owner versus the uh, user. Right, and the prices today say it's all the the owner, and not the user as much. Right? They certainly sort of imply a lot of growth for a long time. I mean, the thing that gets me uncomfortable about the implication, and I, it's obvious. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about here, obviously, right? But like, when you're growing from a small base, you should, by definition, be able to grow fast. Uh, some of these valuations imply a lot of growth for a long time. And that becomes a different treadmill speed. There are a couple of good threads about that recently, and it's similar to the stuff that JT had earlier. Uh, just looking at the the base rate for growths for growth rates, when you get bigger, uh, just it becomes increasingly hard to virtually impossible 
to compound it you know 35 or 25 percent a year once you get even to 200 million dollars in sales like the number of companies that can do it is like you can count them on one hand if you if you grew up around Chernobyl it's like seven <laughs> I thought you got you would get more fingers in that situation he did that's it's one hand seven oh uh, you sick joke anyway um but it did crack me up uh, I guess, I guess that the, if, if I were pushing back on it, I'd say you got to apply it to a global scale. Right. So I guess that in theory, some of the first movers, if they can truly get over borders, uh, should be able to grow for a little bit longer than maybe the data would suggest backwards looking, but I don't know. It's going to be interesting seeing how you do this, how you do cloud over borders. Yeah, well, you start to get into like sovereign issues, and I mean, it's yeah. not GDPR, not issue, like privacy. Look at, look at this TikTok thing and the just how gross that's turned out to be. I mean, that's yeah, what a mess. Well, look at Facebook. Forget about TikTok because that's become that's like just fully for politically some stupid consumer app that no one cares about in two years. Is Facebook a U.S. company or is it a global company? Well, it's literally like, resident uh, in the states, so it's U.S. I don't know. I would argue that some of their policies are actually much more globalist or like free speech. We're not going to say who's right and who's wrong. You start to get into elections. I mean, that that it it's already hairy. I don't think it's going to get any less so. I mean, whose jurisdiction are they in? They're in the U.S. jurisdiction, so it's a U.S. company. I understand what you're saying. I don't think investors are looking at it as a U.S. company. I certainly don't. I look at it as a global company. I understand I mean, that part. The- I understand that, like the, the sale, where the sales come from, where the businesses are. I'm just in terms of like where your legal risk is. That's where you. are all the EU issues, right? That's true. But I mean, I mean, I'm I'm sort of riffing on the TikTok. The TikTok topic is, you know, there there are if American politicians get upset with them for an antitrust thing, which um, is a uniquely US term, then they're going to be subject to antitrust in the US, right? That might be a different, like the EU has a different monopoly. We don't have that anymore anyway. So <laughs> It's just not enforced. Yeah. Well, and like, I, I, I guess I'm not even trying to, uh, I, I think we can all agree, maybe not, that Facebook is being weaponized for some propaganda from all parties, like everywhere, right? You look at, I mean, I think that we can probably agree that some foreign actors were using it to spread COVID misinformation. Maybe we can't agree on that. If we can't, then I got to have a different discussion with people. But, uh, like, I don't know if you are using a technology company that is a resident of the United States to spread misinformation about a virus in the United States. Like, that seems like it's a hairy issue to me. I have no idea how all this stuff settles, but, uh, some mother of it's two a, in Kansas is. Uh, it's above my pay grade. Posting misinformation on Facebook to her 23 followers. I mean, dude, it's easy to say, you know, it's easy to make fun of, but uh, I think that it's, it, it's where information warfare takes place. And I think being blind to that is kind of. Uh, I just don't log know, in. That's, that's, how I, that's how I avoid it. Dude, I'll tell you what, I don't log in anymore and I don't miss it at all. I think I would miss Twitter a lot. I like Facebook, I nothing is removed from my life from leaving that. And it's not even like I'm I, deleting Facebook. I could care less. I just think it sucks. I think Ted Kaczynski might have been right and that we needed we gotta roll back some of this technology. You, you like the theory, <laughs> not the method though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. 
maybe a little overboard with the the method. <laughs> I'll tell you what brings me to Facebook is WhatsApp. And I wonder if I'm probably even counted as a daily active user. That would be a joke if they roll my usership into their metrics. Oh, they do. Yeah, that would be silly. I put a few of those things to... to Marcelo Lima when he was on the podcast and he said no they split all that out it's not it's not rolled they up. rolled it in now do they okay I thought they collapsed it but I haven't looked in a little bit none of us know we're just making shit up as we're going along I Completely. think they collapsed it I'm like 65% sure the manifesto Ted Kaczynski's manifesto is a good read yeah I had a look at it a long time ago Oh my God! Now we're demonetized, guys. I, I downloaded oh, it. I downloaded it from the internet. I said COVID. You said Kaczynski. Ah, oh, this one's gone. Game I'm sure the word manifesto got us demonetized somehow. Oh yeah, game over. Right, J- oh Lord, JT. Uh... It was fun having a podcast with you guys. I appreciated every moment. Podcast. We had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about investment cicadas. And I'm going to start off with a little quote that I found that I really liked. It was, it's from John Wheeler, who was a theoretical physicist uh, around the same time as like Feynman. They worked together on the Manhattan Project. He said, time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. Now, That's a good line. This, it is really nice, isn't it? So a, a cicada is like this little insect, right, if you don't know. And there's a species of cicada that has the longest lifespan of any insect. And most of its life, it lives underground as a nymph, and it sucks the juices out of tree roots for 16 years, not doing much. And every 17 years, it will emerge as an adult cicada, and it will, you know, these vast numbers, it'll mate, it'll lay eggs, and then it'll die. And curiously there's another species of cicada that emerges every 13 years. So what do the numbers 13 and the number 17 have in common? They're both prime. Good job, Toby. Nice. So both done, dude, both. And I, we didn't give him that answer beforehand (laughs) either, by the way. (laughs) Yes. They're both prime numbers. And what's interesting about that is that one theory is that this has to do with actually parasite avoidance a parasite on the cicada and why that makes some maybe makes some sense is if you imagine a parasite that had like a life cycle that was every two to three years there'd be uh, a lot more potential for overlap because of the way the numbers divide together so nothing divides into the number 13 or the number 17 that's what a prime number is it doesn't only divide it by one right so if a parasite had a two-year life cycle uh, it would only meet its host every 34 years on average. And, you know, it gets it gets really hard for that parasite to evolve because it would require it to sit there for 16 years with no host, right? Um, so the cicada's really long life cycle and being a prime number protects it from parasites potentially. And what's interesting is that they've never actually found a parasite on the cicada so it's almost like the dog that didn't bark. Like the guess is, is that it's because of that. Um, so, all right. What does this have to do with investing uh, tenuously? The idea is really that that nothing works all of the time in the investment world. If it did, there would be someone who would 
start copying you or even maybe being a parasite on you. Right. And so you need you need these long periods where it's hard and you're underground just sucking on the tree roots uh, and you're, you know, you're just a little nymph before. Dude, I'm not sure that you're handling this whole thing okay. I know. I'm not. But let's think about, like, let's think about. Uh, There's a tree root. Let's Well, let's think about Charlie Munger. Like, he was, is an investment cicada the way that he's run Daily Journal's portfolio, right? He sat there in T-bills sucking tree roots for a long time, and then it got to be time to push the chips in and he bought Wells Fargo and Bank of America like 2010, 2011 paid really good prices for it and had terrific returns over that whole time period because of a couple of little moves during a, a very unique window. And he had the patience to do that. I will tell you what, to the young kids that listen to this, that strategy requires massive balls. Well, very, you need to be, you need to be a little bit older, I think to, to put that. that one in. You need to be a little bit well, older. You need to have seen a few cycles. They do it, though. You know, like Munger, I, it, the way that they run concentrated portfolios, one of the things that I think is somewhat dangerous about what people hear Buffett say when he says, I'd have 50% of my portfolio in my favorite security is like, that's Buffett. Just be very honest with yourself if you're as smart as Buffett. Yeah, you're not. However, <laughs> what if uh, I think the three of us need to start a SPAC with the express <laughs> the express the vast mandate of investing the money one time per decade yeah and otherwise we just sit in t-bills waiting for the opportunity can i just uh who's propose in? an Who alternative to? solution uh to invest the money in after hours activities sure <laughs> to go along with the name that's what the management fees for <laughs> okay that's fair that's fair but we wait once a decade. We'll deploy in peak we charge pessimism. A, do we charge a six zero twenty? Zero six twenty? No, no six zero twenty. That's good. People are just like, oh, that's a zero six twenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I misread it's the It's a twenty twenty spec. <laughs> yeah, six zero twenty. Can we just can we just go back? So the the thirteen year and the seventeen year. If you're the seventeen year cicada cicada, are they all coming out? at the same time or are they sort of there are this one species they could come out in any given year but there's just it's the same species as on a 17 year cycle the same species is is synced up together they on are all synced up together yeah they come out in these like cloud of huh. bugs and they do their business and then they die and then their kids go back underground for another 17 years, basically. I, I lived in an area that had cicadas come out, cicadas as we as we call them. They come out, I think it was on like a seven-year cycle, That's which is, all, I number. think that's also prime. Yeah. So I saw a few. Watch it. You just, they come out like a cloud and then they're pretty big, right. like they're Swarm. an inch or two long. And then they leave their husks all over the place because they're growing so fast and splitting and disappearing. So as a kid, you run around and collect the these one or two-inch cicada husks pretty fun what do you do with those well you know like it's just like a australian stuff yeah just to do australians it's just a cool it's a cool looking thing it's like a little this you know pretty big insect uh kind of shell how far inland were you growing up uh probably all the way probably <laughs> like right in the middle of the desert three or four hundred <laughs> miles that's why i like value it was the only book at the library <laughs> it was <laughs> 
there were no books in the library. <laughs> yeah. What library? <laughs> uh, How cool is it, though, that nature, like, found prime numbers on its dude, own? it's wild. The Fibonacci sequences are everywhere, too. Well, there would have been cicadas that were one, two, three, and so on. And those ones just, they, they got full of... Uh, they got parasites. Full of the parasites. It's almost like a reverse black swan, right? Like, it's the good thing that happened. I guess it's a little bit more predictable than than a black swan but it's a 17 years is a long time like that you don't well, see many of those in a human the, life the 16 year parasite that's a that's a, like a, a overlap of every like 272 years it's 16 times 17 so dude there's no way the parasite's gonna make it that long you know that many generations to get to you i mean it's it's genius really i love nature it's so amazing yeah, that's 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 astonishing. The the, the parasite thing is interesting too because there are, I mean, the the 13F filings that that hedge fund managers or big institutional investors have to file, uh, they they create parasites, they create hangers on. Uh, I, I I'd be guessing that there aren't many value parasites left because the the performance has been so bad. And you know, we were talking I, about that. Bill says it's the first inning. I don't know. Well, maybe. Of the melt up. It may be. Oh, okay. But the, the the value parasites, though, do you think that those have been sloughed off yet? Well, I mean, who, I, I look at the 13, the whale wisdom, 13F holdings. So you can see who are the most popular ones in there. Bopost continues to be the most pop, one of the most popular in there, which I found kind of, I was a little bit surprised by that because it's not, it's not like that's that's not a particularly popular weird name. stuff often too, yeah. It's, it, that, is, that is surprising. And you don't see the whole portfolio because they've got such a big private, equity debt portfolio there as well you yeah, just see real estate it's still pretty big though uh, and it's very very concentrated like they they have 17 20 percent swings at stuff when it comes in there but i was surprised by that because i would have thought you got to be a little bit inside baseball as a value guy to be a value guy you're a little bit inside baseball to be a, a bopos seth Klarman value guy you're, you're a long way inside baseball i would have thought mm-hmm. yeah. you, th- you think the average robin hood trader knows who bopos is no no, no, I think they're going through not. those 13F filings. I'm going to load up on eBay, whatever's whatever their biggest holding is. Nope. Uh, I don't think so. It's it's a chart of a price, and if that looks like it's just going to keep going up in a straight line, you buy it. Yeah. I mean, that that, that actually makes more sense to me than value Full investing. Full analysis right there. Full analysis. Done. I need to be careful with what I say about this company. Which one? Robinhood. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. All right, folks, throw in your questions. Uh, let us know what... what, uh, what we're you, wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the other thing about being the cicada, man, you, like that Munger strategy, one, you got to swing when you swing, and two, you got to be comfortable with cash drag. And emotionally, those two things are not the easiest thing to handle. You couldn't do it in an open-ended fund. You no, yeah, I'm just saying even if you're just like somebody that's listening to this and you're interested in investing and you think like, oh, I think I might be able to pull that off. I mean, I'm telling you as somebody that ran with cash drag for a while, it's not the easiest thing to deal with. Now, that could be a market cycle talking and I get that, but, uh, you know, it's tough. It's a permanent capital appropriate move. You, doing that with other people's money in a 
normal world is, I would say, very, very difficult to execute. That was one of my beefs with that manager that I left, right? Is like I gave them money to allocate to an equity portfolio, and then we were 30% in cash, and then our positions would go down a little bit, and I'd be like, yo, if you're wrong, sell this thing. But if you're right, like I got 30% in cash sitting there that you should come over the top with, and they just wouldn't do it. So I got a couple. For I got a, portfolio for, construction reasons, like, dude, fuck that. First question: best investing books you've read? Oh, Deep Value. I'm not even <laughs> bullshit. I'm not. I love Deep Value. Uh, then I mean, like the stuff by the Marathon guys, Capital Returns and Capital Account uh, Returns is much more easy to get. Um, I love those guys. I always felt like. Nick Gogarty's nature of value was was underappreciated. Just yeah. a lot of really smart things in there that you don't see other places. A lot of the stuff's kind of regurgitated everywhere else, but this one was I thought fairly unique. I have Quality that and haven't read. It. a good book. Um, White Sharks of Wall Street, Diana B. Enriquez, uh, just about the 1950s uh, corporate raiders. Great book because it talks about uh, how some guys got their start buying up bankrupt uh bonds SPACs. on the cents on the dollar <laughs> <laughs> launching specs i like lowenstein's book my boyfriend cisco says snowball is much better snowball. Uh, i haven't read snowball i guess oh, i need to yeah. it's more comprehensive I'm not, you haven't read I, snowball i'm not kidding you folks. haven't read snowball <clears throat> you for named, real spend wait, the money on deep value that is you a named your book. what's the name of your youngest, the youngest warren graham that's my home <laughs> and you haven't read snowball <laughs> no nah, man i know enough I mean, I'm going to read it. I just, I got other stuff I got to read. Um, <laughs> there's the other, homework. the other thing I think you have to have if you are like into this way of thought. I think you got to read Cialdini, uh, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. For me, I mean, like, Curate for me is entirely a psychology bet. I couldn't have put a lot of the stuff that I have together without studying a lot of psychology. Um, so. I'd give a shout out too to uh, James Monnier's The Little Book of Behavioral Investing. That gives you a really nice overview of all the biases and how we fall prey to them. That one's a lot of information packed into a really nice, dense little package. I'm smirking right now because I feel like Hansel when I'm about to say this, but like Big Money Thinks Small, I haven't read it all, but I think it's probably pretty good. Like I, the chapters that I have read, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good book. Anyway, that's enough. Uh, Little segue with Montier here. GMO's seven-year forecast shows everything losing money over the next period except for emerging market value. Please. Emerging market value in potassium or some BS. Get out of here. And salmon farming. (laughs) Is that what he's saying? Come on. Yeah, that's that's like what he loves. He loves fish. He does. He legitimately loves fish because he thinks it's a sustainable protein source. I watched him give a whole talk on it. And he loves fertilizer. He likes potassium and uh, or phosphate and potash or whatever. I get it. Timber that one disappeared quietly, didn't it? From the uh... yeah, I don't know. I'm about to get my face ripped off going at those guys, but they have been saying this for a long, 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 long time. I mean, that has to be troubling though. If you're uh, your Calpers and you look at that and you go, I got to come up with eight percent returns per year, and this is the like. These are the ingredients I have to mix together to get that. You just keep on we writing better... it into your book that you're going to do that. You keep on writing it no, into you your have report. To, you got to load up on private equity and, and VC so that they can tell you the numbers that you want to hear, right? 
Yeah, until well, you got to sell. We're reporting it, it'll be an 8% return. <laughs> Did, I mean, look, there's it is very possible that we enter a world where, like, all the incentive structure is to take a 1% free cash flow yield to a 0.5% free cash flow yield and that to a 0.2% free cash flow yield. I mean, the prices can go up like crazy when you're on when your denominator is that low. Who's buying? And that? I don't. Yeah, people that have to, man. Calpers, they can't just stop buying. Like they can't. What are you gonna do? You're gonna raise taxes enough to fund yourself on a current basis? Like they can't. It's it's a game that we cannot get off of. So the question is, when does it collapse? And are you smart enough to make that bet? If you are, you'd be really rich. That's. Whoever gets that right is going to get that bet right once in a row. <laughs> That's exactly right. And they'll be the next yeah. Buffett. People write books about them. Well, yeah, it'll be the next Pawson. Waiting to happen. Uh, good question from Corey. Might be a little bit too much for me, but you, you, you two guys can have a shot at it. Has all the weaponized gamma Chopsky options, brand. tail wagging, hey. underlying dog, and tech names in July and August changed the way you're thinking about markets and investing? Repeat that real quick. I was talking about how smart he was, and I wasn't listening to the first part. Has all of the, you know, the weaponized gamma, so option tail wagging the underlying dog in tech names in July and August, whether that's through. So has it changed the way you think about markets? Is it, I don't know whether, so I, I'm a little confused on it because I don't know where it's being driven from. I saw uh, Robin Hood, um, you know, there's a lot of punting going on option, going on in options. And I, there are some younger people in my family who I've spoken to who are all doing the same thing. I was telling them some of the stuff that I like just got laughed out of the room. <laughs> and then they wanted to know, you know, which, which options. And so, so there's clearly there's a lot of uh, punting going on in the options market. But I, I, I don't know what kind of impact that's, that's having. I, I've seen several that's Aust- different analyses. That's Australian for gambling, by the way. Yeah, gambling. That's it, yeah. punting. I mean, I talked to somebody who I have a lot of respect for, uh, and he said that right now reminded him a lot of 87, not in the way that like he thought that we would necessarily crash. This was following March, um, but it was right around when I was dealing with the Robin Hood stuff. And uh, it, it, his, he had a lot of concern about the amount of options trading going on. And he's not somebody that I just not like pay attention to. This guy knows markets. The problem that I have with analogs of markets, that, of, of, for ones that people have lived through, is that there, there are so few of these, like the N is so small. To say that this is like 87, I mean, 87 was in a reasonably undervalued market. Come off 82 low through 87, maybe it reached uh, Cape on an average basis, sold off, finished the year higher. It was just like a, it was a, a technical kind of um, market structural yes pickup. yeah exactly that recovered whereas this i think this is a different type of market like for one thing interest rates are in a totally different place going in a potentially going in a different direction although it seems to be still going in the same direction valuations are totally different does anybody have a good mr market analogy for this this style of punting I don't know if it's. <laughs> I don't look. I don't know, but Corey, the direct answer to your question is to, is what changed, or what I was able to sort of observe, and I don't know if it's the gamma uh, thing that you referenced or not, right? But how quickly people's time horizons compressed to tomorrow in March, and now how quickly everybody's talking about like, oh well, you just think five years out, this thing's or... cheap. <laughs> like, of course, it's expensive on today's revenue. But five years out, it's going to grow by this much, and then it's cheap, so whatever. And it's like, 
Uh, last I checked, we were six months away from you crying. Right? Like, it, I mean, it is, it's this old thing, and it's not so old because it's just been shown. Like, when everything is panicking, everybody's time horizon shrinks to tomorrow. And boy, when it, when everything's up and to the right, I uh, just think 10 years out, you'd be good. Yeah, because nothing bad can happen over the next 10 years. Yeah, that was a great Maybe. Twitter account. I forget who that came from, but at the top, everybody's Skelly time. Cat. Was it Skelly Cat? At the top, yeah. everybody's time horizon is infinite. And at the bottom, everybody's time horizon is is zero. Yeah, that was him. He said that Maybe. to me, and that's stuck. It's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. I mean, and we're closer to infinity uh, here than zero. It was his PM that said it. To be fair, but that was a good saying. Thank you. Maybe to that there's PM. a a good uh, like gamma Hulk joke to be made about Mr. Market. Like he's all hulked up on gamma rays or something. <laughs> gamma Hulk. It's best I can do. Sorry, Corey. <laughs> Tip your way. I mean, how? So here. Corey, if you want to hop back in, uh, how does the gamma, I mean, I know the gamma is the amount of delta in your next move, right? So why, what it, is it just that the options, the embedded leverage in the market is so much higher that you have a lot more gamma risk now? Is that is that like what's going on? Because I don't fully understand once you get into the, all the Greeks. I know delta, I sort of know gamma, I get theta, I don't get the rest. I just Isn't it just the delta hedging to keep it, it the, the fact that they can put a big, position on way out of the money that you have to now delta hedge has and when they're delta hedge they leave themselves gamma open or something like that right because as the next move goes then they have to hedge more delta but they're exposed to the gamma ben eifert described it a little bit in a tweet series that i'm going to slightly mangle here but basically a 1500 dollar premium option bet which you know lots of people can punt at that level can create two hundred and thirty thousand dollars in in buying as the the delta hedge is put on stock the option moves up stock moves up need to hedge again and eventually we end up with two hundred thirty thousand dollars exposure which is massive kind of leverage to that i don't know i can't see what would possibly go wrong with a company (laughs) who has figured out how to gamify uh investing and drive people towards options and margin i can't see why that would create distortions Especially when we we can all agree that tech is not effective at getting us addicted, right? So, I mean, I don't see how any of this is worth discussing. Well, and doesn't the short-term nature of these being out-of-the-money call options mean that this can go on and the price can sort of keep keep up with it because they're forced to hedge? But eventually, you reach a point where it's all those options are zero. And now, like, the game is just over in one round. Is that right? Is that the right way to think about it? I don't know that the options expiring worthless would matter because somebody makes money in that scenario. Option, but, I mean, whoever sells options, but not necessarily. Because right. if you've if you've had to hedge into it, if you had to hedge your your option sales, you may you may still be down on the position. It seems to me you've got a tightly pulled uh, rubber band. Right, everybody better be doing what they need to do quickly. In order to avoid it, the thing is, is this unique? Like, is this is this new? Like, I I just kind of all of these theories floating around for passive flows and like options and all this stuff. There's always an analog for this stuff. It's all happened before. It's not the first time we've seen this. When the market gets like bubbly, bullish, booming like this, it runs up in parabolic way, and then it turns around and it goes the other direction. Happened so many times in the past. I don't know how we can look at this and say, "Oh, this is all brand new." The ETF flow thing scares me. 
Why? It just does. Because I, I, I don't know enough to disprove it with data. I just need to sit underlying. down and do the work. Yeah. So, you know, so if the underlying is illiquid, then it hasn't changed anything. Maybe there's more money in it. But I, I think that all the boogeymen, uh, we've, we've seen it all before. It's gonna, this thing will turn when it turns. It'll break down when it breaks down. Don't worry about it until that happens. Eight more innings, folks. Hop it, well, on. it may very well be. I don't know. Like it, we, it might be a 2040, 2040 top. Oh my god! It could happen tomorrow. It might have happened at September second. We don't know. You don't know until you a think year it after already happened in the bottom of the first. It's possible <laughs> that on. September. Yeah, it, it's that's possible. A short game. It's possible September second was the top. Possible. I don't know. It's like it's possible also that that was not, and that was just the end of the first inning. We've got eight innings to come. That's right. Held no up. one knows. Held up. <laughs> well, it, it, that, I mean, why not? Like I, I, I said. I don't know. That's what I've been saying for a year. <laughs> it's not any dumber than everything else. <laughs> Some conversation. Like I, I talked to Chris Cole in 2012. We were talking about, uh, you know, Greenspan just tapped the accelerator in the late 1990s and that created the tech bubble right he just reduced the interest he for a long time he'd been trying to keep gold price pretty stable it looked like uh there was a little recession so he dropped interest rates and you get you get the the dot-com bubble so then for the last decade we've had the accelerator firmly to the floor rocket fuel in the tank and what does that do i mean it could easily be the mother of all stock market bubbles hey we've gotten like what is it 25 cents worth of gdp for every dollar spent there right? <laughs> that's a little bit flaccid the stimulus the the money multiplier is like it's fallen off a cliff it's not it doesn't look it does not look healthy but who knows i mean ride or die keynesian What's well, MMT is the new like you don't need to pay taxes or anything anymore. You just print it. I mean, and it seems to work. Like I'm not. I'm not I... <laughs> yeah, well, it creates massive distortions in society, in my opinion. But... The, the, it doesn't work in theory, but it seems to be working in practice. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you can look at politics around the globe and think it's working. But uh, I agree in financial markets, it does. I uh, I was playing around with a beloved tech company today and building a model to figure out the valuation, and I determined that I cannot get my brain there. And then I pulled up. Uh, I was like, I wonder what the form fours look like, and it's just people selling like gushers. And I, you know, like some of the people that are selling today were buying in March. It's like an actual fund that bought and is now selling. So it's not so easy to just be like, oh, that's just like normal options exercising. So it's, I find it interesting when Twitter is buying from insiders. It's not necessarily a sign, but it's interesting. The problem is that right? insiders there's sell a lot all the of time. reasons people sell. I, that's exactly right. So it's hard to tell, whereas they only buy for one reason. Yeah, that's something that's I've fair. been asking myself a little bit lately. Is like, is Twitter Mister Market now? Yeah, a and, little bit. Is it or is it like enough of a little fin twit isolated thing where it's, you know, you, you know everything earlier than like, you know, 95% of the rest of the, the market participants? Is I don't Wall know. Street bets, Mr. Mark? <laughs> I don't know. But I'll mi- tell you Mrs. what, Mr. Skilling, a Twitter handle, tweets out Wall Street bets every afternoon. It's, it's hilarious. Dude, Mr. Skilling. I, I do like kind of like those dudes. TikTok investors is a good follow. Too, TikTok investors, yeah, classic. That's 
That's pretty good. I generally, I think Twitter made me much smarter. So uh, there are times it makes me dumber, but thank you all to anyone that's yeah, listening. Is there, is there an echo chamber and like a, other people's voices that you're putting into your head too much? Bro, I tweet out about Wells Fargo and fucking curate. You think that I'm part of the echo chamber? I get shat on like crazy when I come out with my ideas. Why would you own a bank, you dumbass? <laughs> I have in my inbox is filled with people telling me why I'm wrong. I'm like, I get it. You guys don't like this stuff. <laughs> selling stuff to 50 year old women and like a bank i yes let's talk about tech now why are you inviting that abuse i don't know because i think it's good for me i actually yeah, not, i think it's it helps me not. through stuff i mean that's that's the way to if you, as long as you can be as long as you can separate it from yourself and you can get the ideas and not internalize them then i did get a little triggered like last week or something <laughs> i i did i sort of responded to somebody a little bit more angrily than they deserved and i had to subsequently apologize for my behavior but i was like man i've been getting trolled for a week i'm sorry yeah that must be tough i know you know <laughs> <laughs> the difference is they do it to you publicly yeah i i, I literally don't care anymore so Go hard. The, the mute button is my friend quietly paddle over, press mute by. That's right. Yeah, well, maybe one day if I can write a book half as good as yours, I'll get the haters. Like, for real. Yeah. In the, due time. The time to do yeah, it is right at the it. end of your, your strategy working. So when the book comes out, it's just misery for, like, the six years that comes after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you top tick that one. I wish I'd known. When did Deep Value come out? 2014. So what what'd you do? You did quantitative value? Or, 2012. Uh, okay, and then when did concentrated investing come 2016. out? 2016. Huh. I didn't realize that that was after devalue. All right. Well, there you go, folks. Now you know Toby's timeline, that at was, least most of it. That was a good project. It was a fun project, concentrated investing. How many guys did you study that blew up? Not, well, none. So it's a little bit, you know. <laughs> but it's survivorship got- <laughs> bias, sir. It was interesting because yeah. it's Glenn Greenwald from Brave Warrior, formerly yeah. Chieftain. And uh, he, part of the reason for the separation there, reading between the lines of that interview, was that uh, the other folks who've stayed with Chieftain preferred a, a deeper value style. And Glenn Greenwald's more of a uh, prefers better quality, faster growing stocks. And that's probably been the better bet for, since that came out, since 2016. Uh, you know, there, there's guys in there like Christian CM who's the Nordic uh, Warren Buffett. I hesitate to say that, but he's like an oil and gas guy. So he, 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 he's he got a great stock, S-E-M-U-F, uh, pink sheets traded in the States, trades by appointment only. And I think he buys most of them, but you can tag along there. That's gangster. You trade by appointment only. I don't even know what that means. It just means it never what? trades. It just doesn't trade. Okay. Damn, All right. Damn. Well, I like that. I, I have owned it in the so past. So you got to sell it. Yeah. I, I've owned it, but I just... <laughs> current, current projects exclude this. Anyone on Twitter, anyone want to buy this stock for sale? <laughs> There's definitely some selection bias in it. I, I, and I was I was pushing hard for uh, for the investor... Um, oh, now I'm going to... I just can't think what his name is, but he's got a 25-year track record. Um, Atlantic Capital, Alexander Ropers. I was trying to get Ropers in because he's got a very long track record of outperforming. Uh, and he hasn't done so well since that book came out. So uh, the co-authors were right on that one. Do we have any more questions we need to address? I think we're coming up on time. 
I'll tell you what, some of y'all ask how concentrated we are. My IRA, which I do not treat like my PA that I actually care about, is very concentrated and it's running right now and that is not easy to handle. So you get the bends, mate, when you go when 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 if you're if you're a value guy and nothing's worked for a long time, when stuff starts working, you get the bends. You know that you know what the bends is? Deep sea divers who get the Yeah, when you in come up too quick. Come up too fast. End up That's in, in the fetal position. <laughs> Yeah, put me back down. Let me lose money. You get this is the problem for value investors, and I've had a lot of time to think about it. it has never happened to me, but it just when the when the portfolio works, you, you, it, or some stock works, you you want to sell out of it as fast as you can because you get you got to crystallize those winners. You got to pull those pull your flowers, water your weeds. Yeah, no, I don't do well, that. It's the other way that's around. Sort of what's going on. All right, folks. Anyway, have a good one, folks. That's time. Thank you. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13. See?